you know that I have a 11 month old here at home and he's been at daycare for the last six months. And today I have a parent teacher conference for my 11 month old. Oh boy. And I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm in part, I'm excited because this is the start of parent teacher conferences, but what are they going to say about my son? He fills his diapers pretty well. He eats his bottles and he plays with other kids. I mean, what else is there to say? Yeah, I don't know. This is kind of a check the box thing, I guess. Well, I even asked them, I said, is it all right if I bring my son because I don't have any daycare? And the instructor said, well, as long as he doesn't mind us talking about him. Yeah, I think he'll be fine. But thanks for the understanding and concern. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 354. I don't know why I introduce this every time. It's the same people. It's the same people as last week. <laughs> That's Chris. I'm Reed. You know, welcome back. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if any of you want to have a conference with us, a listener podcast host conference, we're up for it. Let us know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of which, I mean, kind of analogous, similar. We do want feedback. We say every week, like, hey, you know, reach out to us. If you see us in person, maybe reach out on LinkedIn. And, and that happens, certainly. Uh, I've had some nice comments lately. I actually had somebody send me a note on LinkedIn this past week referencing one of the episodes and had a question. So that, that's all great. And, and please keep doing that. Did want to just kind of drop a nugget, uh, put a little bug in your ear that we will, you know, as we kind of creep towards the end of the year, be sending out our annual annual survey. So again, we do a little show at the end of the year where we talk about our top episodes and what people liked and best guest and you know, all those types of things. And so we're going to, um, you'll start seeing that promoted uh, on LinkedIn. Certainly we'll talk about it here on the show. You'll be able to get to it through the show notes, things like that. But also also, in, in upcoming TPS reports, you'll see a link there as well. So be on the lookout for that. If you don't know what the TPS report is, go to the website, touchpoint.health, and you'll see something listed up in the top there, name, email address, and that will get you an email. Email comes out every Monday, a little value add to your weeks, five articles. Uh, and like I said, there'll be a quick little blurb in there that you can click through and uh, answer a couple of questions for us. We would be super grateful if you did that. So you get that email, if you will. Uh, again, touchpoint.health is the place to do it. We'll pause here, let you do that, and then be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So Reed, it's time for us to do a podcast episode dedicated to AI again. I guess it's getting more frequently. I joked a few episodes ago, it's every fourth episode. I think it's now we're getting to every three episodes because everybody's talking about AI. It's been almost 45 minutes, so we need to, <laughs> we need to talk about it again. Well, this one actually is inspired by this past week, James Gardner, a friend of the pod, he 
posted on LinkedIn an article that says, should we be blocking ChatGPT's web crawler? The article title even went even further. It said CNN, Disney, Reuters, and the New York Times already are. And it was kind of like, you know, this like posing a question, should we be blocking the open source ChatGPT's web crawler, which in the article, he quoted someone from the Cleveland Clinic, our friend Amanda, and then someone from a university, higher ed organization as well. And they're both actively considering the way to do that. And it kind of led to this conversation through the LinkedIn comments on this. And I weighed in. And also our guest interview this week, Jeremy Rogers, also weighed in, and it led to the genesis of this topic today, which is a conversation around open versus closed AI systems and figuring out which one's better for healthcare. I think that's interesting because, again, you're right. It's hard to make it through a day, a half a day, an afternoon, a meeting, whatever it is, without topically this coming up. So, I mean, we will continue to talk about this, certainly. Super excited. Jeremy decided to come back on the show. So first, let's start. Let's talk a little bit about this concept of open versus closed AI. In this context, AI is, there's many different flavors of AI. There's like, you know, large language models. There's generative AI, which everybody knows from ChatGPT and BARD and stuff like that. There's also different types of machine learning tools that are out there. There's a, a whole flavor of AIs that's out there. But the development world has kind of grouped them into two different places, a closed source AI model versus an open source AI model. And so let's get into defining what that actually means for those people that may not be aware of that. And we found a great article called Two Worlds of Generative AI, Closed Source AGI versus Open Source Narrow AI. So let's kind of go through some of the high level points here. So it talks, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I've heard some of this terminology before, but it starts out by talking about that generative AI, while it's continued to develop, that we're really seeing, to your point, Chris, that you've mentioned, an emergence of two distinct worlds that offer a differing approach to the model building, some of the applications, data curation, et cetera. The first one being World One. <laughs> well, that's not the official title, but that's what the person who authored this article calls it, right? Yes. What is, what is World One? So they talk about it in the sense that it consists of closed sources. So this is the closed source side of the equation. So open AI, anthropic, fashion AI, you know, anything that you see that's, you know, kind of more of a, a product, I guess, that's emphasizing kind of more of a general purpose large language model. So, you know, this is where you kind of see the search engine type application, maybe. Is that fair? Yeah. They call it artificial general intelligence platforms or AGI. Here's another three-letter acronym for us. Mm -hmm. AGI. They want to create AGIs by building massive large learning models or LLMs that can tokenize and process vast amounts of public data. General purpose applications that can be really designed for the consumer to use. ChatGPT, BARD are really in this platform. Yeah, absolutely. Point being, it's, it's, it's a target for everybody, right? I mean, that, that's who they're reaching out to. It's not for any particular use case. And really, they're investing in the ways to really make these models big, but also proprietary, right? That's why you have to pay for uh, the higher level version of ChatGPT, because this is kind of black box, right? So that's why they call this sort of a closed source AGI. In this world, tooling is of secondary importance, and the primary goal is to develop powerful, large AI learning models. And that's a big difference from what this other world of AI systems are, which we call world two, open source, narrow AI focused projects that have a smaller form factor. Yeah. And this is where you see like if there's something that's healthcare specific, right? I mean, this is where that would kind of fall into. It's tailored for specific applications, really trying to think of ways that large language models are ingesting information that give it a very specialized knowledge set. And the data that they use is curated and organized from private data, data that you can't access from the general public. It's not like creeping all of the websites. And here, what they're looking for is looking at commoditizing the model. The focus shifts from developing advanced models 
to creating really good applications that are focused and narrow for businesses. So think about like translating EMR notes into consumer-friendly you know, reports through open notes. That's a great example of what World 2 looks like. And this, this is kind of set up in the AI world as kind of two different worlds that are almost competing for each other because they have contrasting outcomes. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the first set, World 1... The idea there is to understand and kind of dominate more of the broader AI landscape with general models, whereas, you know, the the second half of the equation aims to, you know, really democratize AI, they say in here, by offering specialized solutions for various industries. The closed source approach of World 1 can lead to a more centralized AI ecosystem. Of course, built on these large companies, right? Google, Microsoft, World 2 open source nature fosters collaboration, innovation, and actually is where we're seeing more and more adoption of AI in healthcare because of that very nature of it being closed and private, right? It's It kind of aligns closer to our organization. Even like chatbots kind of fit, fit into this. They have unique strengths and weaknesses, but I will say the future of generative AI kind of lies in this balance between a closed source focused approach of world one and the open source narrow driven mindset of world two. And the author of this article says by leveraging the strength of both worlds, we could drive innovation, ensure widespread access to AI technologies, and also unlock full potential of AI across industries and applications. They kind of wrap this up a little bit by talking about the fact that, again, it's like you go through this whole thing and then it's like there's there's this caveat, right, of like, well, it's maybe not always clear cut where one starts and the other one picks up. So it's quite possible that, you know, you're going to have organizations, companies, uh, even verticals look at a closed AI system to kind of fuel the core functionality and build on top of that with open source tools. A really interesting article. I think it's really interesting call outs in here. Be sure to check it out for for sure. I think that the takeaway here is there's two different ways to look at the world, uh, no pun intended, or maybe. It's still early to really understand, you know, how these kind of two approaches are, are going to, you know, maybe even work together or be part of what you're going to find yourself working with. Yeah, absolutely. And so when we come back from this break, Let's you and I read, let's dive into a little bit about how open AI systems and closed AI systems are being used in healthcare today. We'll illustrate that with a few use cases. We'll do that after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so now we're all going to pick. Uh, we do an open or closed. <laughs> that's 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 where we're headed now, right? Well, I'm not sure. It's a it's a it's a binary decision, right? As we just talked about, there's a lot of these that are hybrid, but there are actually really good use cases of both open and closed AI in healthcare. Let's go through a couple of those examples because I think it gives us good context here. So again, we've talked about uh, in the first half of this a little bit of you know kind of definitional alignment, if you will. But again, OpenAI, they're developed and shared using open source software, right? So this is code, data, et cetera, publicly available. Seems that, you know, that would give everybody kind of an unbiased or level jumping off point, maybe. Yeah, I think that's the intention here, right? The more data, the more you can unbias your data sets. You know, so maybe let's talk about a couple of ways that 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 practically then plays out. Yeah. So first, think about medical research. This is one of the first things that we've heard about, like openly discussed, right? Using open AI systems to accelerate medical research by helping researchers and scientists across the world 
analyze large amounts of data and identify patterns and trends that would be difficult or impossible to find through like maybe one clinical trial set of data or, or what have you, or even manually. This has been applied in many different cases. Some open AI systems have actually been used already to identify new drug targets and develop new diagnostic tools. And we have some links in the show notes where you can actually see some of this. That's one example. What's another one, Reed? Public health. So again, if as we're going through these, you know, remember publicly accessible information, level playing field, good for all. So again, medical research fits into that, public health fits into that. So, you know, how could you use some of these systems or models to improve the public health? Maybe by tracking and analyzing population health data, disease outbreaks, you know, different kinds of trends that would allow you to develop maybe interventions, things like that. Yeah, some rudimentary applications of that happened during COVID, but it's becoming even more and more adopted now. The last major use case under OpenAI read is around clinical care. OpenAI systems can be used to improve clinical care by offering clinicians tools and resources to help them diagnose diseases, develop treatment plans, and monitor patient progress. And that only can happen if you look at large data sets of, you know, of whatever that clinical treatment is, like let's say brain cancer. OpenAI systems have been developed now to help clinicians diagnose cancer, and even they're starting to be used to personalize treatment plans for cancer patients based on this large data set open model. And I think it's a really exciting application of how open AI systems can be used in healthcare. All right. So now let's look at closed AI. So how do you get ahead? How do you win? So these are systems in, in which you get a competitive advantage because you're smarter than everybody else. Right? Yeah, no, yeah uh, exactly. <laughs> no, um, but these are these are things, you know, closed systems by sheer definition, pretty straightforward, right? It's developed, it's used by maybe a single company or organization. I mean, it could be vertical wide, but, but typically it's, it's a narrower vantage point. Information, data, you know, the training models are, are not publicly available. So, again, allows your company, your organization, your state, your industry, I don't know, whatever, you know, more control and, and that kind of thing. Right. So I mentioned before, right, looking at medical imaging. Well, actually, medical imaging systems are, are this is a hybrid model, right? Because they're also based on closed AI models. You can analyze medical images, x-rays, MRIs, CT scans. There are companies out there that are using this to identify abnormalities and diagnose diseases. Think about AI applications for radiologists to help them read their scans better, right? This is a great example of a closed AI system. Now, it's a little bit hybrid because it pulls in data from other disparate sources, but does it in a very much a closed model. What's, a, what's another one? Drug discovery could be used to accelerate drug discovery by you know, helping researchers, scientists, et cetera, identify uh, maybe new targets, develop new drugs, et cetera. Again, you can imagine this inside of a company, right? As they're looking at developing new drugs, new variations, things like that. People already do this, like philosophically. Inside of a company, they're developing drugs for said company. This is just a different modality to, to kind of do that or aid in that effort. And all of the pharmaceutical companies have AI models now that are doing this in a, in a very closed way. It's in order for them to build new uh, pharmaceutical offerings, right? The last one is ones that are very closely tied to the EMR and in clinical care and health systems, ones that we have seen adopt in health systems already, and that's around personalized medicine. These systems are using closed data, patient data, imagine those in your electronic medical record at your health system and identifying treatment options for each individual patient and making recommendations. I know Epic has announced this. I know Microsoft has announced uh, that partnership. Google has announced a partnership with Mayo. What they're doing here is using in a closed model of this, again, this is a little bit of hybrid though, right? Because it's an open application being used in a closed data set to help personalize medicine. Um, these closed AI models have helped physicians develop personalized treatment plans for particular, whatever those patients are. And we're, we're seeing that application happen over and over again. So that begs the question though, Reed, we talked about open and closed here, which approach is better? If we're going to have to 
pit them against each other. Which approach is better? Yeah, yeah, you got to pick one, then you can't go back. So everybody, <laughs> everybody, choose your path wisely. No, but I think it's pretty obvious if you go back and look um, at, at kind of what what we just rattled through. There's not a right or wrong. Um, you know, open. It's it's a certain use case, right? So as you think about things, we talked about public health, for example, some areas of research, even. That makes sense. Like, you know, what's good for one is good for all kind of a thing. And then closed being more specific to, you know, what you're doing as an organization, the goals that you have, you know. And so drug discovery is an easy one to point to, but even some proprietary stuff around patient care potentially. And I think there is a world where both of these models work well together, right? We could see the benefits of this. And I know that when we get into open AI applications, that people get a little concerned because that could share personal data about individual patients. Well, the application is a little bit different. Overall medical research where you de-identify the individuals or you use it for public health interventions, that makes a lot of sense. Now let's kind of bring it all the way back though, Reed, to where how we started today's conversation, which is around, should we be using ChatGPT to crawl our websites? I think a lot of people in the health system get a little nervous about having an open model crawl through our websites because of this whole concern around privacy and security, particularly in light of the OCR's ruling around third-party tracking. And so that becomes like the big question here for organizations is how do we weave our way to that in the future? I don't know. At some point, I could argue, you know, certain levels of like, well, I mean, it just it just is what it is, you know, kind of thing. And like we can't be constantly running around trying to stop every bot, everything that, you know, everything that's happening online. But then again, I could also argue that that's our job. And but also I could then say, but there's nothing terribly proprietary or there's certainly no PHI like just publicly out on the website. I don't know. You kind of go round and round with some of these things philosophically, you know. You do. And, you know, when you go down this path of kind of considering AI, this is why it's really important for organizations to adopt AI governance and have conversations with people, not only on a technology team, but your legal compliance team, because of the, the appetite of how much you want to go down the path, you know, is, is working with them, is to understand their concerns and perspectives as well. This actually is a great transition to the interview I had with Jeremy Rogers. He is the executive director of digital marketing and experience at Indiana University Health. He's been on the show before. So if you've listened, uh, you, you, you may recognize his voice. Really smart guy. He and I sat down and talked a lot about how his organization, Indiana University Health, is starting down this path of doing considerations around AI. And we went into sort of the pros and cons, as you outlined, Reed. You do have this circular kind of approach to how how you think about it, right? And you have to land on a way that's the right path forward for your organization. So after the break, we'll listen to hear his particular case study of how he's working on it. And then uh, you and I will be back to close out the show. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast, and today I'm delighted to have back on the show one of the persons I would consider you're in the top five people that I like to interview, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Rogers, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Chris. You're too kind. You and I see alike on a lot of different topics, so you kind of help uh, reinforce some of my beliefs, but then you also have different perspectives that get me to think differently. So this is just a win-win in my book, so I'm glad you're on the show again today. Happy to be here, Chris. You know, some people listening in may not have heard you before. Before we get dig into our topic today, mind sharing a little bit about your background and who you are, what you do? Happy to, Chris. So Jeremy Rogers, I've been at IU Health now for just over seven years. This is my first and only job in healthcare. My background is in 
e-commerce, both consumer and B2B. Um, so really been focused on consumer digital solutions for almost 25 years now in my career. I'm a native Hoosier, so the mission we have here at IU Health <laughs> of, of making Indiana one of the healthiest states um, really connects with me. It resonates because um, that's where I'm from. It's who I am. Um, so every day my team is focused on all things consumerism, transparency, access, self-service, um, just helping patients better navigate the system, making healthcare easier for our customers and patients. That's really what we get up in the morning. Going from out of industry to our industry and the regulations around our industry, it sometimes feels like a little bit of a culture shock, doesn't it? A big culture shock. I've, pro- I've promised myself I'll never get too jaded here in, in healthcare, but I'm still even even seven plus years in. The pace of change, the bureaucracy, the regulation is still mind-numbing sometimes. In our space, digital in particular, there's so many changes and advancements that occur, and sometimes they occur much faster than our organizations and our regulations are, are keeping pace with. That's one of the things I wanted to talk to you today about, which is the thing that's all the buzz. Throw a stone, and you're going to talk. You're going to hear someone talking about generative AI in healthcare. So let's start first. I'd love to get your take on the whole the whole concept around generative AI. Is it ready for us to use in our health systems? You know, from your perspective. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I try not to roll my eyes every time I hear the term AI now, but it comes up so often. It's almost like a drinking game. I am definitely very long on AI. I think in terms of looking forward, huge opportunity, huge greenfield for us. Um, I think there are areas even today where AI can help and, and provide real value for both patients and health systems. Um, you know, there are examples. We've, we've been using AI for years here, just like many of our peers, you know, things like chatbots. I think we have some pretty novel use cases. I know we've talked before. We um, are one of the few systems that are doing things, actually generative AI to generate bios, biographies for providers. We have a, a local provider we work with that we've been doing it for almost five years we feed them raw material, credentialing information, patient satisfaction ratings, experience scores, NPS scores, and, and the AI generates bios on the fly for us. We do it for almost 2,000 providers. So that's an example. It's not an exotic use case, but it's really a value add. So we don't have people manually doing it. And from a marketing perspective, we get a huge SEO bump because we refresh those bios every month. And so the signaling to Google and others that we have fresh content is, is one of our secret sauces, honestly, in the SEO game. So just things like that. But I'm, I'm with you in terms of where AI is at right now in the hype cycle. I think you have to be careful to, to distill the signal from the noise. Um, I think you need to stay abreast of where things are going. Nobody has the answers. It's a highly evolving area. Things are changing day by day, week by week. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. Does that make sense? It, it sure does. And that use case that you described about physician bios, so understated in this day and age, but something that we always struggle with. And I think that's a really great use case. But, you know, Reed and I have been talking about different types of AI systems, like the open ones and the closed ones, where we're, where we're hearing a lot of the buzz is around, I, I believe it's because of the, the adoption of some of these open generative AI solutions like ChatGPT and Google, they've really jumped the shark, if you will, right? Uh, Google's barred in, in addition, right? They're the ones that have made it sort of mainstream and what everyone's talking about. And I think that when we talk about AI, People default to, oh, that's what we're talking about. But that's not the case, right? You're exactly right. I think people focus on specific use cases. And because things are so immature, they think about chat GPT or they think about a chat bot, not thinking about the longer term. Like, you know, there are front of house use cases, back of house use cases. There's the training data, how we're using it, and to your point, both closed and open environments. Huge implications. I think we've we've thought about it in terms of, the, the information, the content we share openly, freely, publicly versus things we have behind the doors, things like EMR data, things like other proprietary information that is certainly not published publicly. You have to treat it the same way you would pretty much any other spider or robot or crawler or API you would have that shares data externally. My spidey sense is tingling because this sounds a lot like the last conversation you were on in the show with, which we were talking about regulation around third-party tracking, right? And how we have to kind of consider what is the right application, what's the right use case. In this particular case, too, I think we're struggling with that because these open systems, they even have, so far as admitted, they've gone out and scraped virtually every website that's out there to gather content before they release their product. Let's talk first about your feelings about that. To, to me, I have certain 
feelings? I'd love to hear what your perspective is. Yeah, so I try not to deal in feelings too much. But I, I would I would challenge people listening. Do you know how many people are crawling or indexing your website today? I think many people don't. I, I actually do. We look at our data. Any given day, Chris, you know, it, let's say 10% low teens of the traffic to our public websites is from spiders or bots from all over the world. Um, in my prior lives, we would look at people that were doing DDoS attempts or we had people overseas who were literally scraping the entire website and publishing it as a different brand. Um, that happens all the time. So if you don't know who's already traversing your website, that's probably step one. Um, you're exactly right. These, these AI agents have already, I mean, ChatGPT, the multiple versions that they're using data they scraped years ago, every day their indexes are being refreshed for the new version. That's just happening. So like I mentioned before, you've got to really figure out what, you know, which, which types of data are your crown jewels? What information are you sharing publicly? What are you not? For us, for example, like things like provider directory, location information, service information, that's public data for us. I mean, we, we, we distinguish it that way. We federate that data via public web. We share it via third party, Google My Business, Bing, Yahoo, you name it. We, from, from a discovery perspective on the marketing side, we want to get that information out there to make it as accessible and discoverable as possible. Now, there are different things, like I mentioned EMR, like patient portal, mobile apps. Those are things that are kind of behind lock and key. People have to authenticate. You certainly don't want people indexing that kind of content. And you you can disallow that. You can use robots.txt, put up a login page, a CAPTCHA, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you have to kind of slice and dice your content differently and decide what your appetite is. You know, and that approach, uh, from if you don't mind the pun, that surgical approach to analyzing the content on your site is actually the right way to... Uh, in, in my perspective, I feel the same way. I'm, I'm still a little torn, though, that ChatGPT and Google did all this crawling and then released a paid product behind it. And to me, I feel a little bit of like this sort of an, uh, uh, an issue around copywriting, an issue around, you know, who owns that content. That's still a problematic thing here, though, right? If you, if you allow these third-party uh, generative AI solutions to subsume your data. It totally is. I mean, I think those of us who are nonprofits, you have a, a risk there because if you have a license agreement, if you're actually adding commercial value for a for-profit entity, that may jeopardize nonprofit down the road. Now, we're way far away from that in many cases. But I look at things even like GDPR, like in the EU, there's the whole right to be forgotten law. So if you allow one of these AI in agents to index PII or information about a, a, a consumer or patient, what if they want to be forgotten? They want to opt out or do not contact. You, you have no ability to ask ChatGPT to forget this particular type of data. It can't happen. So just there's, there's again, we're so early in this. Time will tell how that plays out. Much like what we kind of faced with with the big, you know, as Ben Dillon calls it, the apocalypse. Suddenly, we couldn't do third-party tracking on our websites last year from regulations. I have a feeling in the back of my head that OCR and and there's and other government regulators, FTC even, might be kind of uh, keeping an eye on what's going on with with AI. Our, admittedly, regulation is sometimes hard to keep up with the technology as well. Do you agree? I, I do agree. I think I, I'm less worried about that on like the public web perspective. I think in terms of the back office data, the you know billing data, EMR data. I mean, I can tell you, we've talked. There are many health systems who have actually just blocked ChatGPT like on their local network because they they people are afraid of team members um, entering proprietary or confidential information to to a to a chatbot or to an agent to help. Um, not realizing that you're then providing training data. So there's just there are risks in that area across the board. But to me, it's less about the public web presence versus the other proprietary stuff. Right, right. And that's kind of where the uh, the rub is, right? I, I think people less sophisticated than you are probably looking at this and saying, well, should we put that chat GPT blocker up for our enterprise or should we put it up uh, on our websites. I think, uh, you know, we, we have the legal and compliance teams that are very much conservative in nature, fair to say. Uh, and they're and they're basically saying, let's not let anything in until we figure this all out. Do you feel that's the right approach? 
Um, I hate to tell people what's the right or wrong approach, but I would say that's kind of uh, that would be kind of ham fisted, in my opinion. Um, I think, you know, there the, we, we do block certain types of crawlers. Like I mentioned before, there are people who use them maliciously or the, the ones that basically drain resources and are indexing them properly. We do block those. We are not specifically blocking individual AI agents, number one, because right now, it's, it's kind of impractical. I mean, like you could block ChatGPT, but the other, whether it's Bard or others, they're not all on the same even playing field in terms of the ability to respect a robots.txt disallow provision. Um, so I, I would say that's number one. Number two is if you're, if you're blocking everything, is that, to me, that's almost like going back 25 years and saying you're going to block Google. Like if you think in a time machine, would it have been a good idea to block Google back in the late 90s, early 2000s? I would say probably not in terms of the importance of that as a front door right now, the discoverability, the the, the accessibility component. Um, you know, like I said, I'm long on AI. I don't think that AI will necessarily totally flip the search world on its head, but there, I have no doubt in my mind that AI will become a very, very important component of consumer search. And if you if you believe that thesis, I think it goes hand in hand that you probably don't want to just universally block AI right now. You want to be kind of um, stepwise in your approach. Yeah, you need to figure out how to play with it in the right context. I think it is evolving in, in search engines. Uh, Google's Bard is just one example, and Bing is now, well, who uses Bing? But Bing is, has integrated uh, ChatGPT into its search as well. I think it's actually going to uh, very quickly because people are playing around with it. There's a vast number of consumers out there just playing around with these tools, it's there. It's rapidly accelerating in terms of adoption. I mean, Chris, like my, my kids, my son's in ninth grade this year, his English class, they're literally teaching them to use ChatGPT to help edit their, their content, not, not to generate for them, but to help them edit and proofread their content. And so you think from a discovery perspective, to me, that applies to like the consumer use cases, like patients who are looking for best doctor, best location, find me the provider with the next appointment for uh, joint replacement or whatever. I think that's where we're going longer term. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great uh, and un easily understood use case that you just outlined, right? Because uh, it's, it reminds me too, uh, again, all these technologies that get adopted very quickly. Remember when Amazon and Google released their home devices where you could do voice search, we had to adopt how we're structuring our content, structuring our data on our public websites for that medium. Now we have to start to think about how do we adopt it for these open generative AI solutions. I'm totally with you, whether it's voice search or the big focus on zero click search a couple years ago, I think this is just a natural evolution of things. I, I think like in the SEO world, you're going to see people that are specializing because there are going to be tactics and data structures that people optimize just for AI agents to make sure that in terms of discovery, you don't want your content diluted when it goes into the training set for an AI agent. Um, how can you structure your data to best position it for that? I think there'll be more focus and specialization on that over time too. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you personally, I've found that Google's Bard solution is excellent to like take content and search engine optimize it, right? To SEO it. Clearly it has access to the algorithms for Google. You you could this is a really great use case for you to to, to apply the the tool as a co-pilot, so to speak, for what you're you're trying to accomplish from a digital perspective. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. But I mean this kind of really speaks to now how do we regulate it? How do we address it? And this is that evil word, governance. Like what's our governance? So I'd love to hear your perspective. Maybe you can even share a little bit about how you're approaching it. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think with, with any large health system, it takes a village. I think you have to have strong partnerships across the board, folks in privacy and compliance, folks in InfoSec, obviously the, the marketers who are out you know, driving um, demand and behavior. Um, it, it can't be behind closed doors. You have to be transparent. Um, and so like most things we do here, we, ha we have working groups, we have collaborations that we form. Um, folks who have relationships like in the industry or with large tech providers, we have to make sure we're staying on top of things and just be humble, be willing to know what you don't know. I think anybody in this situation who tries to claim like they have the secret sauce or they have a vision or the perfect solution, they're probably fooling themselves. So you have to come humble and, and ask the questions, you know, bounce ideas around, look for different perspectives. Because I think when you get that kind of thought, that, that, that thought leadership together with different diverse perspectives, you can get a better solution, a better approach.
I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I do want to ask, you know, many people that I talk to about AI or generative AI solutions, they're not very technically minded, right? So do you spend a lot of time educating them on the different applications and the different use cases? Is that, you know, how do you, how do you start to socialize the concept of this within your organization that may or may not be technically literate as we are? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I think I think a lot of it is socialization, proselytization. I think it's it's helping people connect the dots. Um, I don't try to educate people. I think is there are people far smarter than I are, more technical than I am. Um, in my role, I kind of sit between technical interests and the business with air quotes. Um, so it's it's really it's it's kind of that like primer that I provide that translation service in between. But again, because we are very focused on the customer, on the patient. Um, in, in my team's role, it, we're putting them at the center. So as we make decisions, as we consider options and priorities, how do we make sure that we're balancing all of the other, you know, whether it's a technical need or a compliance need or a business need, we have to make sure the fulcrum is, is, is properly aligned there. Now, I've used these, um, you know, I find it as part of like research for my own edification. I've been using the ChatGPTs, the Bards, the other open generative AI solutions that are out there to do, you know, testing of quotes and phrases that are or terms that I see consumers use when they're searching for healthcare. And I have to say, the results aren't great right now. What are ways that we could start to uh, maybe align better with these these solutions to to make our search results better? No, you're exactly right. I think some of it's the training data. I mean, they've, they've admitted some of it's pretty aged now. And I think if you look at the way they've changed some of the capabilities, it's actually, some people argue it's actually performing worse now than it did back in the spring when it really crested and got super popular. Um, but I, th- I think you're exactly right. We're still in the first inning here, but I think um, as the training data gets more mature, gets more timely, you know, if, if you play with it recently, they've added more preferences where you can actually sort of train it to the, the types of responses that you want in, in your preference settings, which is really cool. You know, I, I think, again, I, I see longer term, you mentioned the co-pilot concept. I think you're exactly right. I think in the clinical space, the co-pilot will be very powerful, but even in the marketing space for content creators, for folks who are doing SEO optimization, um, You'll, you'll have the kind of that that dual screen approach where you have like the, the the native work they're doing and the AI agent helping them, helping to to surface new ideas, surface new themes, surface maybe angles or perspectives that the human didn't didn't note because of the amount of data or the diversity of the data. I think that's how it could play out over time. So now that you know we're we're talking about this kind of nebulous newer technology, and you have some really good mindset around it, we're talking about governance a little bit. What do you see as like in the next maybe you know twelve months or two years as being some of those earlier or additional early use cases that you're evaluating? Yeah, so I, I hope that we get through some of the hype here in the back part of this year, and we get into more tangible use cases. So I think it's if we look at the the, the big partners we have, the, the the alliances we have, how can people weave in these new capabilities into um, solutions we already have live? You know, whether it is scheduling or some of the other marketing use cases we have, how can we leverage this type of capability to get better, faster, smarter, better connect one-to-one with our consumers? So we, we talked about the segmentation, how we can A-B test or optimize or personalize things. I think there's huge opportunity for leveraging technologies like this within those current workflows. So I guess I would say it's less about like looking for bespoke or different or like totally greenfield new implementations, but the things that we're already doing, how can these types of generative solutions make them even better? Because we talk a lot about ROI and, and driving more value. I think this could really help us squeeze every last ounce of value out of those sponges we already have. Think of it as additive to what you're currently doing, not, not yeah, like you said, not greenfield, right? It's like you want to you want to figure out ways where you could do this. I also, by the way, find that these solutions do a really good job of analyzing performance data of your digital digital efforts. Yeah, what I'm worried about though is if people overpromise. Like if you look at like conference agendas or webinars now, it's almost like people are are like seeding in AI buzzwords just for like SEO purposes. I really hope people don't get caught up in like fake it to make it. And I really want to see true tangible value. Like it's, it's going to be show us, don't tell us. I think that's super important in the future. 
Yeah, and it's only time will tell, right? So as many of these people speaking about AI's application in healthcare, they're just getting started on this, just like you and you and I are. In that particular case, we have to be very realistic about this. It's like we're experimenting, we're we're working to find where these solutions are, even though there are others, other use cases that we've been doing for years, which are proven, time tested. So I think that's an important perspective to to layer over at. What what other things would you recommend to people that are maybe thinking about how to manage this generative AI issue? Yeah, I, to your point, I would say start small. Like what what are your what are your primary business goals? What are the key objectives for your organization? And then how can you boil those down and find individual point solutions or point approaches? Don't just throw darts at a dartboard. Look at what your are the, the tactics and strategies your teams are already focused on. How can you leverage things like this to make them better? I would start there and be, like I said, be humble, be willing to fail. You're not going to go all in and bet everything on these things, but find ways to take strategic bets. And if it doesn't work out, great. You've learned. Move on to fight another day. So true. And in our field, we don't often spend that much time on you know, these experimentation things because we're lean and mean. And we really, you know, I think the first promise of, of AI was like, oh, it's going to make our lives that much more efficient. But you kind of have to get into it in an experimental way. You do. Great words of advice there, Jeremy. You know, people listening in, they may want to connect with you online after they hear about this. What are ways that they could do that? Yeah, so LinkedIn is probably preferred from a, a business social networking perspective. I am on X slash Twitter, but I'm, I'm more of a lurker nowadays because of things that have happened there, obviously. Um, but I'm, I'm open on most social channels. I love to connect to collaborate. So please reach out. Happy to chat. Well, absolutely. We'll put links in the show notes. We're also going to, you know, I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to link over to your, uh, to your find a doctor solution so people could see some of those generative created bios on your provider. Absolutely. But don't, don't unleash your private bots on our website, please. <laughs> That's a really good, actually, <laughs> that could be a really good uh, a way to close out any conversation. Just don't unleash your, your bots on me anymore, please. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Jeremy, thanks for joining, joining, uh, jumping on and joining us here. Really great words of advice, really practical words of advice. You you, you didn't throw a wet blanket on the hype, but you definitely gave us a, a pragmatic approach towards uh, what we're looking at. Awesome. Well, again, happy to help, Chris. I appreciate the invite today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, special thanks to the infamous, infamous, famous, I don't know, Jeremy Rogers. Thanks for coming on the show. Always enjoy uh, not just him coming on the show and sharing knowledge and wisdom. And we're certainly thankful for that, but just uh, getting to see him a handful of times throughout the year at different conferences and conversations and super, super smart guy and super thankful for him um, and his, his insights. Again, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. We mentioned the TPS report and the the pending survey that, that'll be coming out. So be sure to sign up for that so you can uh, give us a little bit of feedback. We would certainly appreciate it. Rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. That's still the number one way you can help us out. Before we get out of here, a couple of recommendations. What do you got today, Chris? Reed, we, we've been recommending a lot of TV shows, but that's because there's a lot of great shows coming out. And I'm going to recommend one this week. It's a, a four-part documentary on Netflix called Big Vape, The Rise and Fall of Jewel. You remember Jewel? Oh, yeah. Cigarettes, right? Had a chance to watch that this last week. It was fascinating. It was one that, you know, was highly promoted. And I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. I, you know, I heard of Jewel. They got into a lot of trouble, et cetera. What was interesting about this documentary is, much like today's podcast, where we kind of like ended with there's rights and wrong ways to do things, it really painted the picture of what Jewel was in two different ways. Uh, it starts off talking about the founders of Jewel, who were technology people. They always envisioned this to be a technology solution. They were chain smokers and they were addicted to cigarettes. And what they wanted to do is bring a product to market 
to help alleviate smoking because we know smoking is really bad for your health uh, because of the tobacco and the tar that you, you breathe in causes lung cancer. It's a big problem. And so what they did is they were, from a technological perspective, they were trying to solve the problem of providing longtime smokers the ability to find a way through through e-cigarettes that are much less harmful um, and they do that by delivering it through, you know, an e-cigarette, which basically they eliminate the nicotine, they eliminate the tar, they actually make it so that when you smoke uh, the Juul product, which they eventually came out with, uh, it has very little health impacts on, in, you know, in your lungs. But unfortunately, the documentary kind of outlined the unfortunate aspect of the fact that the way they marketed it, they marketed it in a way that made it appealing to teens. And it actually caused uh, a great rise in teens doing e-cigarettes or vaping. And we heard about that. And we, we, we know it came out in the government. You know, that there were hearings about it at Congress about this chronic, condi- chronic rise of teens having e-cigarettes or being, you know, being addicted to vaping. It's because they still kept nicotine in the Juul cigarettes. And it was really a fascinating documentary to kind of walk through all of this. From the point of view of the founders, from the point of view, they actually had employees that were, they interviewed, they talked with public health officials, and it was it really painted a really interesting perspective of they were trying to solve one problem, but unfortunately, they marketed a very addictive product to teens, and it caused this whole other backlash. And then eventually, you know, Juul is still around. It talks about what happened to Juul. Spoiler alert, they're now owned by Big Tobacco, which is the very companies that we're trying to take down. Um, it's very fascinating. And I, I found this documentary to be very compelling. So I'm going to recommend it. If you uh, have Netflix, go watch The Big Vape, The Rise and Fall of Jewel. Four episodes, really uh, interesting watch. Very nice. I was going to call an audible and actually, because of that, recommend the film Richard Jewel. <laughs> Which is actually very interesting. It's a, a biographical drama uh, about, uh, do you remember who that is, Richard Jewell? He was wrongly accused of the 96 Summer right. Olympic bombing in Atlanta. That's right. Atlanta. That's It came to me. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's really good. I may just stick with this recommendation. Um, I'm not sure where you can find it. Probably you can find it online in, in a few of the different streaming sources. It came out a handful of years ago. Uh, but kind of goes through that. I, you'll come out of that actually. Some really interesting actors in there: Sam Rockwell, Olivia Wilde, uh, a few others. Uh, John Hamm, I think, is in it. So yeah, I, I may just stick with that. Richard Jewell. I've got a couple of other queued up shows that I've been watching lately because of all the travel. So that's usually what I do on airplanes. So I've got a few, I've got a few other. But uh, but yeah, just sticking with the Jewell theme, uh, I'll go with uh, the Richard Jewell documentary. Or actually, I don't know if it's technically a documentary. It's a movie, but it's about about Richard Jewell and that uh, kind of what led up to and and, and actually the kind of the aftermath uh, of all of that. That's actually I just found out it's on Hulu. I did watch that when it came out. Very interesting. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Again, we'll be back in about a half hour with another episode on on AI. But, um, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. But uh, but certainly if there are topics, ideas, thoughts, uh, people that we should uh, have conversations with or talk to, let us know. Uh, again, number one way you can help us out, rate, review, subscribe. Always the, the best thing you can do. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. LinkedIn's the best way to do that. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.